Recorded live. On April the 2nd, 2017, no matter where you are nor who you are, you will never see this day again. So make the most of it. It's a wonderful, beautiful day. We're in Chapter 9 of the Book of Acts in this class. Uh, Just a little pick-up verse or two here before we get into today's lesson, beginning with verse 27. Let's go back to verse 21. Uh, Paul was in verse 22. He was increasing in confidence. And then in verse 23, after that many days were fulfilled, so there's a time lag here, the the Jews took counsel to party with him. At whose expense? You folks are either not tuned in or you're not listening yet. Paul's expense or Saul's expense. At, Paul's, at Saul's expense. And um, they plotted together to... To do what? And he, and so Paul, uh, Saul was doing everything right. But again, who was plotting against him? What is the book of Revelation about? The Jews. And what about the Jews in Revelation? All right, they, he avenged the apostles and the prophets and the saints against the effect of the Jews against Christ and his church. Folks, once you got that, you've got half of the New Testament down and you've got it pretty straight. So it was the Jews who took counsel, they plotted, to kill him, to kill Saul, but their laying in wait was known of Saul, and they leaned back and waited for a touch of the Lord to save him. And you're buying into that too. Where have you been? Did you all go out and get drunk last night? <laughs> See, that's how we think. Somehow, if his disciples, uh, that uh, the people that he was that he went there to, uh, you know, arrest and take back to Jerusalem for, you know, sentencing for laws against, you know, the faith and everything else uh, were the people that he was now with. And they had, they, they were now protecting him. And so they have to use, he's either going to die or they got to hold their, they got to put their heads together, they've got to do some brain work, because if they don't make a plan, God's going to let him die. God won't interfere, because this is, this is up to the people now. People have to do it. God's not going to step in. God has stepped in to, to uh, dissertain and to affirm his office as the apostle, given him a plan on what to do to be saved. But now he's going to have to, the folks around him are going to have to use their noggins. 
they knew perceptively that the Jews were going were plotting to kill him. They knew about this. Saul knew about it. And so they also knew that the enemy was watching the gates day and night so they would get any chance, any opportunity. So the people were smart. They used their brains. God's not going to step in and lift him up and carry him away in this case. That isn't that God couldn't, but God doesn't do that. The David did short time before. Saul had stood, witnessed to Stephen being subject to the same thing. That's right. But no one saved him. No one saved Stephen. Good point, Nolan. No one, and, and so Stephen ended up getting stoned. He died. The same thing could happen here to Saul. But the disciples, the disciples gathered around him together, which tells us that they agreed with him on every point. No, that isn't what it means at all. They probably didn't know half as much as he knew, and he didn't know a lot at this time. Not yet. But they still stood by him. Every leader has their own style. Every leader has their own method. Every leader has their own way in how to develop a plan. But what's unique about the church is that whatever those differences are, we come together and unite ourselves so that whatever those plans are, they can be carried out. And when the church fails to do that, it has failed to be the church. Anybody want to disagree with that? The 45 is loaded. (laughs) So what the disciples did is what they could do. They led him down on the outside of the wall, out of sight of those who were trying to kill him, and they did so in a basket. Talk about a mundane way of escape. <laughs> a basket. Moses in a basket once. Moses was in a basket. He was a basket case. <laughs> now, in verse, and this is, just brings us up to date to put us in the mood of the context here. Now, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he um, was trying to associate with the cardinals of Rome. Were they in existence yet? No, remember that that system did not begin until 533 A.D., 500 years after this point. <clears throat> so he he wanted, was trying, he was putting forth his efforts to join himself with the disciples when he came had come into Jerusalem. See, we have a change of location. 
But they were all afraid of him. Any wonder why? He was just formerly an enemy. Oh, yeah, formerly an enemy, and now just like that. Think about the, what do they call that? The diet, uh, the, uh, the shift. What do they call that? Paradigm shift. Think of the paradigm shift in an airplane. <clears throat> A grouchy man was in a seat. Across the aisle from him was the father and his son. The son was restless and disturbing. The grouchy old man sitting next to him across the aisle got so disturbed he made an accusation to the stewardess about Somehow can we correct this problem? And then the father told that grouchy old man that this little boy had just been to his mother's funeral. He was killed in an accident, and he didn't know what to do. Now, what, what do you suspect happened to the old grumpy man? There was a paradigm shift. All, right. <laughs> All of a sudden, what can I do to help? And so here you have in verse You have verse 26, the disciples were all afraid of him. And they weren't convinced yet that he was a disciple. There had to be a paradigm shift. We have to go through paradigm shifts in life. You know, we get, get, the reason that, that I am so emphatic about using expository preaching is because it keeps you from getting Neil. Um, mm-hmm. um, it, it keeps one from getting locked in to um, pet peeves. If a guy is always doing a textual sermon, he will nearly always perpetuate his pet peeve. Expository preaching is the biblical approach to Bible preaching. Preach the word in season and out. Preaching the word means to be an expositor of the scripture. That doesn't mean there are not times for topical. Doesn't mean that there are not times for textualizing. We did that next last Sunday. But as a rule, expository preaching keeps a person away from their pet peeves and keeps them moving in a direction. And if you cover a book, you will cover all of the issues that are relevant as you progress through that book in its proper way and proper time. Whether it's Colossians or Philippians or 1 John, all of them cover all of the issues in a different and unique way. And if you stay in the text one little section at a time, 
you will cover all of the main issues that the church needs to hear today. So when we are going to the book of Acts, we're covering almost all of the major issues, if not all of them, by the time we get through. That's expository teaching. And we need to sermonize, for the most part, the same way. That doesn't mean, again, that there can't be topical issues and, and textualism is using a grouping of scriptures. But you've got to be careful about textualizing because what happens, if you take a verse from this book and a verse from that book and a verse from that book, those verses are not talking about the same thing. You have to take, take that verse in its context in that book by who is writing it to those people and the people to whom it's being written. And it's not going to be the same in Ephesians as it is in Philippians. So you can't cross over uh, consistently and stay with the same topic. We think we do because we're using the same words. But that's just a a pet peeve. (laughs) You know... A question that came up to me this week when I was studying this, All right. and that I have for you: Do you can can we assume somewhat safely, not that it's even really in, you know really that important, that this time when he met the apostles, that's when Luke learned of Saul's you know story, uh, so he could pen it with the rest of the book. Uh, it, it's uh, it's interesting to me uh, because Luke doesn't write that way. He doesn't include himself in the text often, if at all. He doesn't easily when he's there. If he's there. Otherwise, he's reading it through inspira- uh, writing it through inspiration, as Moses did. He's writing it as history. Well, so what was the question? I missed the question part. I think, I, well... You know, no, I, I, it isn't really a question. It's it's more of a, just, you know, an observation. I, okay. I I think this might have been, this might have, if Luke met Saul, this might have been when. <laughs> How's that sound? Well, and particularly in the next verse, because here he is meeting to the the disciples in general, but very specific in verse twenty seven, he goes to the apostles. So. And that's where we begin today, folks, is in verse 27. But Barnabas, I love, I love, now we've got all the disciples. They are not believing that he was a disciple at this point. They had not had that paradigm shift. In contrast to. In contrast to. It's a death. And for you, those of you who have access to the Greek today, why, that's the second word there. It's de, and it's a conjunction, but it's the conjunction that means it's an adversary to what's going on before, in contrary to other things. Sometimes this is translated and, but usually the word and comes from the word chi, which means he's connecting equals together. <clears throat> But in this case, it's a but. 
contrary to what the disciples were doing, here's a guy that stands out. Now, I remember a few years ago now that Joe came here and brought a message, Joe um, Vaughn brought a message on Barnabas, and this was one of his texts. And that's recorded, I think. So anybody wants to look it up, I don't three or four years ago. But anyway, Barnabas. Let's look that word up and see what the word Barnabas means. Well, they don't define it. I don't see. So I guess we'll just leave it there. I have some notes on that somewhere, but I don't have it with me right now. So anyway, Barnabas, Barnabas, in contrast to the disciples, took him. And whenever we come across this name Barnabas, you're going to find Barnabas is in this kind of a role. He was always there when something was controversial and he could step in and provide the paradigm shift. And notice what he did. He took him directly to Rome to the cardinals. Really? He took him to whom? They, he took Barnabas now. You know, we've had Ananias. Now we have Barnabas. Barnabas is rescuing him from the disciples who weren't in that paradigm shift process yet. They took him, he took him, and brought him to the apostles. He took him to the right folks. And he declared, Barnabas declared unto them, he became Saul's defense. He stood up to the plate and made a public defense of the, uh, to the apostles about this dude, Saul. He was risking his life in doing such to the disciples who weren't yet convinced. But he took the risk. Isn't it wonderful to take a risk for somebody you believe in and stand up in their defense? That's wholesomeness. That's Barnabas. We need more Barnabases in the church. And they, anyway, he brought, he brought Saul to the apostles, taking people to the right source to the right people who could give to him the right answers because they had access into the very thinking of God. Their spirit was open to the mind and spirit of God. Barnabas took Saul to the right people. Didn't take them to the didn't take them to the Presbyterian church, nor to the Baptist, but took him to the right people. 
and brought him to the apostles and declared. And he now, Barnabas, declared unto them three things. What are the three things? You tell me. This is verse 27. Barnabas declares three things. What's the first one? The Lord on the road. That he was a witness then of how Saul had done what? One? The Lord on the road. See, Saul, he had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. He had seen the Lord. He had seen the Lord. We heard it, first of all, as being a light. Then it was later, later the information came that Jesus is the light and it was really Jesus that he saw. And light was simply the representation, manifestation of Jesus, the light of the world. So one thing is he testified to the apostles that this Saul, this Saul that was being rejected by even the disciples, but by those of the Jews who were seeking to kill him, this guy has seen the Lord on his way to Damascus. Now that's as far as they would need to go. He he would have needed to have gone with me. But that's not all that he said. There was another thing that he told the apostles about Barnabas. That Jesus had talked to him unilaterally directly. I have never had that happen to me except through what modus operandi, through the word he speaks to me, but never from the source of light, pure light, information, pure, true, accurate information right from the mouth of our Lord. Talk about a paradigm shift So, so far we have two things. Barnabas was making his defense to the apostles that he had seen the Lord, not only seen him, but the Lord had spoken to him. How much more do you need? But then he puts puts a cap on it. Not only had he seen the Lord and spoken to the Lord, but he had done what in response to that? Boldly. He had spoken boldly. That had brought about in his life a total paradigm shift. Any time, even though this was his call to the apostleship, but any time someone sees that Jesus is the light of the world and listens to what he has to say and begins to speak boldly about who they believe Jesus is. Folks, that's the paradigm shift that we need to take place in the church today. And so he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that he went around saying, Jesus, Jesus. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't have had to use the word name. He would have just said the word Jesus. But what does name mean? If you look at that up, it's a word that means what you have on onam, uh, uh, namari, and that's nomenclature. That's what the word means. It, it's, it's the... It's the um, <clears throat> it's the full disclosure of who you are, and I'm sure Strong's won't get it. Very very weak in that. But the word name is the full disclosure of someone. That's what the name means. And so when you people have these people on the street hollering out, you know that's that's so sick. Because they're not doing it in the character of the Lord. Not in his nature. The full disclosure of Jesus talks about what his origin was, who he was while he was here, where he went when he ascended. And if he came out of God, he came out of heaven, and that was his origin that makes all the difference in the world to how you relate to him when he came here to be as one of us. <clears throat> three things. Who can review those three things real quick? Three things that Barnabas, how Barnabas defended Saul. One. First of all, he saw him on the road. First of all, he saw him. Secondly. He, uh, he was witness to Jesus speaking to him. All right. Witnessed Jesus speaking to him. And then he spoke boldly in his name. And that's right. And then in he went to the very place to where he was going to persecute Christians. He spoke out boldly in the name of Jesus. That's a pretty strong recommendation. There was something unique about Saul that he was a learner. He was a true learner. No matter what his opinions were at this point, he was a learner. The stronger you are in your opinions, generally if they're right opinions or you, 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 you have a conviction about them, the quicker it is to overcome them if you hear the truth, if you're a learner. You know, some people learn and they never change. People in the church for 20 years and they still think the same today as they did 20 years ago. Ever notice that? They still use the same phrases. David, does the word describe any other, any other apostle as arguing with people? Like it does Saul? I don't think so. I don't, I don't either. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't recall. Either. Yeah. Yeah, I could be wrong. So you just think about those three things. And so Barnabas stood up to the apostles in Saul's defense, and he said, if I'm going to be convincing to these guys, here, see, he pre-thought. What do they need to know? He didn't talk about him going to a bingo game. Or what? Or what he brought 
or yeah, or what kind of a casserole he brought to the potluck. Didn't talk about his past. Just simply said, now I'm bringing this guy to you, and here is what I know about him, and that is he had seen the Lord on his way to Damascus. The Lord had spoken to him as he has to you who are now apostles. And then he had gone out being fully persuaded, having had a total paradigm shift, and he preached and proclaimed boldly in the source of the town that he had sought to imprison in the name of Jesus. In verse 28 then. And so he was going with them. Now who's the them? The apostles. He was moving around with the apostles coming in and going out of Jerusalem in and out of Jerusalem, in and out of Jerusalem. Who was moving and moving and moving and moving along with the apostles? Saul. Paul. And he continued in verse 29, he spake, he spoke, he spoke bravely, boldly, in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenistic Jews. The King James says the Grecians. So putting those two words together, what does it mean to be Hellenistic? Okay, let's let's look it up and see how close anybody is. It's the Jews who had embraced the Greek language under Alexander the Great, mm-hmm. or Greek, see, the, they were Greek, Greek-speaking Jews. Speaking Jews. And they say, especially a non, non-Jew, that's, that's but that's wrong. No, that was just that, that part of the word where, where, where it was derived from. Oh, okay. They do, oh. They do have All right. So, Greek-speaking Jews. I, thank you, Alex. So, so it's those who had who had bought into the Greek culture and specifically relating to the Greek language, they were called Hellenistic Jews. David? Yes. How do we know how Barnabas knew these things? Was he an eyewitness or... Uh, we're just looking at what his name means. It means son of a prophet and son of encouragement. Son you think it was by prophetic? It could have easily been, all it doesn't say so. You know, I don't believe it says, but I think that that's how I would look at it, because he, the word itself means he was the son of a prophet. He was apparently one of the New Testament prophets, apostles and prophets. I, I think so. Um, I think we have to be careful about yeah, from an to a fact. But he's saying some pretty direct things. Now he could have heard him preaching if he'd have been there. Yeah. We don't know that he was. No, we don't. You know, and <laughs> but that speaks, was my question too, Neil. But he speaks yeah. very uh, w- without any hesitation here or without any qualifying statements like I this is what I've heard. 
or no, anything of that sort. No, he speaks from first-hand knowledge. Bert, that's right, right there. I wish we had more background on Barnabas. Yeah, but we don't. That, that's that's why I asked you about Luke. Yeah, because I, I kind of want to wrap my head around where Luke got his information from before he penned to this, and and I understand that there could be a variety of sources. Well. Let me give you an illustration which may not be accurate. I mean, in its application. But look at Moses. Genesis uh, chapter 24 and verse 4 says that Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Now that's apart from what he wrote on the stone. Are you with me so far? Yeah. He wrote all, I think it's in chapter 24 and verse 4. He wrote all the words of the Lord. I'm assuming, cannot prove, that he was a prophet as a Christ, a type of, Moses was a type of Christ as a prophet, that he is, he had had revealed to him the history of creation down to the time of Sinai. From that point back, it was revealed history. Can you prove it? No. So I believe that there were things that Luke records here that he says he found out by intensive research. Remember back in both chapter of 1 in the book of Luke as well in, in, in Acts? I have searched, O Theophilus, these things out minutely. Some of it may have been by inspiration. Some things we don't know, you know, with certainty. I guess I'm going to have to leave it there. I don't know where to go. Well, it's a curiosity um, because David, they could have <clears throat> spoke directly about it. They could have, Luke and Saul could have, he could have communicated it directly. That's right. And you got to remember that Luke is the author here all the way through. He's closely arraigned with everything that's going on, and maybe when he wasn't there, he searched it out and got documented statements to go by. So, the, the, the important thing in verse 27, Barnabas did not take him to the local church board, did not take him to the apostles, I mean to the, to the disciples, to just the general believers, but took him to the apostles. That's critical to remember. And then he was with them in verse 28, coming in and going out of Jerusalem. So for a while, we don't know for sure how long, but for a while, he was with them continuously and speaking boldly in the name of the Lord and disputed against the Hellenistic Jews who were after his hide because it says they went about to slay him. They were getting their feelings hurt. And they didn't like it. They were against what Paul was saying. They were against the apostolic message. They were up to killing anybody who had a true message of the gospel. Now, in verse 30, then, 
which when the brethren knew, and now we have a new term here, brethren. When they knew, it had come to their knowledge, not unilaterally, but through the accumulation of evidence, hearsay somewhat, they brought Saul down to Caesarea. Now, it could be that the brethren here include, or at least include to some extent, the apostles. But here they're called brethren. They brought him down to Caesarea. And, of course, what is, why is Caesarea important? Well, it just became a, a launching pad for him to go where? Where was Paul, Saul from? He was from Tarsus, and now uh, he had gone from Caesarea Philippi, didn't say that, but that's Caesarea Philippi, and sent him away to Tarsus. Now, isn't it interesting? Well, why is that interesting? Because we don't hear about Saul anymore. He went home. We don't know what Paul went through or what he did for a while. So when Saul was home in Tarsus, the churches had peace. Were being built up, getting ready for the Jewish and Roman conflict revealed in the book of Revelation and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now let's look at a couple things in there. Two things. First of all, in verse 31, one is we have a season, a time of refreshing. After all of the turmoil that we've been through at this point in the book of Acts, Now we have a period of time when the church can get its act together. We call that a time of refreshing. And it was quite an adjustment for the church because they had been persecuted from the very beginning, from Acts 2 all the way till now. There was always the threat of their leaders being slaughtered. We've had the death of Stephen. That rings in their head. We have all of these scenarios where the Jews were after any of those who were promoting the truth. So it's a real adjustment time for the church. You know, it's like when you've always driven in a car and then you rip a page out of Nolan's magazine and you hop on one of those bikes and try writing it? 
That takes a paradigm shift. The whole new experience. Now the church has a whole new experience. The book of Acts ends. Uh, this is for a thrill, folks. Look at the very last word in the book of Acts. I don't know what chapter. And I hope I'm right. I think it's chapter 28. I don't know what verse, but the very, the very end of the chapter, there is a key word here. Because now we have come back to Paul, and where is Paul when we end the book of Acts? He is in prison. And we, in verse 16, and we came to Rome. And then keep going down. All the way down to the end. I don't want to dwell too much on here. And I don't know, I should, I should have turned to my text. 31. 31. 31. Okay. Oh you, oh, you got it. You got it. He got right on to it. <clears throat> I should have done the same thing. Um, or, or as it says here in verse uh, 31, no man forbidding him. Here, here he is now in prison. He's going to write the four prison epistles. And the very last word in the book is the word that just puts goose pimples up and down your spine. Paul had to be in prison. But while he was in there, he had the total freedom to write and to preach the gospel unhindered. Unhindered. I have yet to experience a time in my life in ministry where I have been unhindered. That's a rare, rare time, folks. But Paul had to be put in prison. Now, Saul is out of the picture and the church is promoting the gospel unhindered. That idea is what gives us a division in the book of Acts. That's how the book is divided, is by that, not particularly that word, but by that idea. And so here in verse 31, all the churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, isn't that what Acts chapter 1 says? And you will take the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That was the promise in Acts, in Matthew 28 as well, Mark 16. Going into uh, Judea and Galilee and into Samaria, they did. Those, that promise of Jesus to them is in the process of being fulfilled, and the churches had rest. They had peace. Now, they were, being, they were being one, they were being built. By the way, appreciated your communion meditation, scripture reading last week, very, very appropriate. I meant to talk to you earlier, but it's too late now, but that was, that was fine. It fit, everything fits so well. Um, 
I don't know why that happens. Sometimes it seems like whoever brings the communion meditation, it ends up being very pertinent to the whole story of the day. Why is that? Is that providence? Could, could be providence. <clears throat> so, here, here we have the church was edified. What does that word edify mean? Actually, uh, the Strong's is pretty weak to be a house builder. It, it means to build an edifice, but if you take, see, the first part of that word is, is occupants. Hoikod, that, that's the word meaning occupant. Sometimes, by the way, in that book we're reading, they have misquoted this as to being the normal word for uh, uh, earth, and the the original word isn't uh, geis; it's this word, yeah. which means the inhabited earth. Yeah, and they have actually written it down and and mis uh, recorded it, so it has an effect on that whole keep, passage. Keep repeating it, and they keep repeating that. And it was it starts with an error, but this means the inhabited, the the, the place of in in um, habitation, the place of habitation is is literally what the word means. To dwell, to dwell, the dwelling place. Now, if you want to know the etymology of these words, don't trust Strong's. You have to see those blue books over there. There's probably thirty pages that define the whole etymology of this word. Now, I expect you all to read those and have it memorized by next week. Um, and I... Bollinger's pretty good, too. And Bollinger's pretty good, but, better you know... Oh, much better. Yeah. yeah, Bollinger's has a lot better. But if you really want the full history of where, how a word begins, how it grows, and what it comes to mean, that's the book, that's Kittles. And it is the most thorough set in print of the history of any word. And I don't use it anymore because I can't read that much. But nevertheless, here we have the church is being built up. And the edifice part of that word means it was beautified. It was being built beautifully. Interesting, Dave. The dictionary in my phone says that edify or edification can be either a noun or a verb. Or it could be. Yeah. yeah, to edify, uh, to be edified um, would be one thing. Edification, um, they were edifying, would be a verb. They were edifying. Um, they were edified, that's a verb. This is an, this is an adjective. And, and this is an adjective, although it's, it's from a verb. But it's a participle, which means it's describing when it's in the describing mode is describing not just that it's a habitation of people but what kind of habitation is it it's a beautiful one it's a beautified and built properly and that's right built yeah yeah it's got two by six studs (laughs) oh yeah and it's got a tile roof 
<laughs> and it's got right colors. Yeah, oh yeah. So you see, the church was taking on form as a structure. And it was a beautiful structure. And with that, we have to close. I did not realize we were over time. Father, we commit ourselves to living in agreement with the beauty of the text and the beauty of the structure of which we are a part. In Jesus' name, amen.